please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Um, you may be saying, are we still in Mark chapter 12? And yes, we are. We are nearing the end of this uh, rather long chapter. And as we've been talking about over the last several sermons about this series of interactions, these confrontations, this conflict that Jesus is having with the leaders of the Jews. Um, this passage that we have before us in verses 35 to 40 is the final encounter in that series of controversies. And it really began back in chapter 11, shortly after Jesus had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. It continued with Jesus exercising and demonstrating his authority over the religious worship in the temple as he cleansed the temple, drove out the money changers there. And from there, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders began to question Jesus. And really what was happening was, is their authority was threatened by that activity of Christ and by his teaching, of course, as well. He upset the misuse of the temple and he threatened their power base and they wanted to try to trap Jesus in his words. First, they questioned the source of that authority when they, when they, they posed the first question. Jesus then responded with the parable of the tenants, which was an indictment against these leaders. And they were to care for and guard the proper use of the temple and the right worship of God. But instead, they were building their own empire. And then we have more questions posed to Jesus, most of which were antagonistic and meant to trap him in his words. They concerned the pain of taxes, the resurrection, when the Sadducees came to him. And then previously, and just the last time, last week, we saw a scribe who seemed to be, at least on the surface, genuine in his question, asking Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And our text brings us to the final encounter between Jesus and these leaders. And it's the scribes that are again in the crosshairs of Christ's teaching. There's a question asked, but this time it doesn't come from the Jewish leaders. It comes from Jesus himself. And he asks a question of the scribes that we need to pay attention to tonight. And then following that question, Jesus gives a solemn warning concerning the scribes. I give you all that as a background and just to try to refresh your memory of where we are in the text. We're in this act two of Mark between Christ's teaching and his crucifixion in this interim period during Holy Week. And most scholars think that, this, that these interactions that we've just summarized happened on Tuesday of Holy Week. So let us read our text, but before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we bow before you, needing you, recognizing that your word is divinely inspired. Lord, that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And there is, there is power working in it by your Holy Spirit, not magically, but truly and really. And Lord, we desire that your work would happen within our hearts. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? 
David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. There are two parts to this text and that, are, that is before us, and I give you these as two points of our sermon. You see them in your outline, inserted in your bulletin. The final question and the solemn warning. Both the question and the warning concern the scribes. The question really comes as a, as a riddle of sorts as he poses this question to them and doesn't really give them an answer in our text, but just kind of leaves it hanging in the air. The warning is given to his followers and those that are surrounding him as he's teaching in the court of the Gentiles. And it exposes the pride, hypocrisy, greed, and corruption of these scribes. The first thing that we must consider about this question that Jesus posed is that it is a genuinely challenging question. It's a difficult question. One thing that we should note is something that I didn't really deal with in depth at the end of our text from last week, which says at the end of verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Mark gives us that as, a, as a, um, an insert to say that his questioners were done. Jesus had stumped them many times. He had put them to silence because of the wisdom and the way of, of his answers and the way that he went to the heart of the matter. And we spoke in, in previous sermons how Jesus had answered these questions. Now Jesus has a question for them. It's his turn to question them. And he gives them a doozy. He says, how can the scribes say that Jesus is the son of David? Well, that is true. Jesus is the son, the descendant of David. We see that in both in Matthew and in Luke in the early chapters of both of those gospels where Christ's genealogy is recorded for us. We see that his genealogy, that he is a natural born descendant of King David. But Jesus is just setting them up. He goes on quoting King David from Psalm 110 where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he also his son? Is the Messiah, is the Christ, the son of David, or is he the Lord of David? This question had likely never been posed to these men. The fact that Christ, which is the Greek word for the Messiah, would come from the Davidic line was well established. That was well established in many Old Testament scriptures. We can see that in places like Isaiah 9, which is a familiar passage that we read um, at, at Christmas time. Jeremiah 30, Psalm 89, a number of others established the fact that Christ, the Messiah, would be of the line and lineage of David. The, the Apostle John in his gospel testifies to the, the universality, the commonality of that belief as he cites the people of the day, which, and he says in chapter 7, has not the scripture said that 
the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. The people knew this. The people expected this. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. This psalm is a, is a royal psalm. It is addressed to either David or one of his kingly descendants at their enthronement. It is wishing the new king success in his rule and reign, in giving him victory over the surrounding nations, the conquest of his enemies, and the certainty of those things as this king submits himself under the rule of Yahweh. Mark is careful to point out that David is speaking under the inspiration of Scripture. And I think there's something that we need to pause and reflect on briefly here, that, that David was speaking in the Spirit when he wrote this psalm. We believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, and that holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit, where we read in the New Testament. We believe that God spoke and that the personality of the authors comes through in all of the divinely inspired scriptures. The scribes believed in the authority of scripture. They believed that they were God's word. They saw one, Psalm 110 as speaking about the Messiah. But then Jesus throws them a curveball about this, about this psalm. Is the Messiah David's son or is the Messiah David's Lord? Which is it? We know that it's not an either or question. That Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord. And that's why this is such a vital question for us to understand. It's vital because we must know, we must understand who Jesus is. We must know and accept and believe that he is both David's son and David's Lord. Being David's son points to his humanity. Jesus took on flesh and became a man. He did this all so that he might live a perfect and sinless life, perfectly keeping the law of, the, of his father. Jesus was a man, or we should say that he is a man. He was born, endured the miseries of life upon the earth. He felt sadness and pain and grief and suffered immensely on the cross for you and me. Being David's Lord points, of course, to his divinity, to his lordship, to his kingship. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is David's Lord and the Lord of all creation. And to sin against a holy and infinite God requires an infinite punishment. As simple, mere human beings, we could not pay the penalty of that sin that's why the punishment of those who insist on living in rebellion against their creator is the eternal fires of hell. Jesus had to be God to bear the weight of that sin. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ so that the debt of your sins and of my sins could be paid. I have the privilege of, of when we're able and, and need to do this to um, when there's a number of children that are, that are growing up and, and approaching uh, young adulthood and, and maybe have questions about joining the church. We have, a, we have an intro to Christ Church class for adults and we have something similar but different for children. And in that class, I've had the privilege of, of teaching it a couple times since I've come here to Christ Church. But one place we start is who is Jesus Christ? 
And if you remember your membership interview or if you're anticipating a membership interview, that's probably a question that we will ask you because that question is vitally important if you consider yourself a Christian. Think about it. If you are a Christian, you are taking Christ's name as your identity. So therefore, you should know about Christ's identity if you call yourself by his name. Who is Jesus Christ? The church has wrestled with this, and especially in the early centuries of, of Christian history, we, we see them coming together in councils. One of them produced in the fourth century uh, the Nicene Creed, which says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, and it goes on. We see this reflected in our own confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and in the Shorter Catechism. And, and one of my favorite questions and answers in the Shorter Catechism, question 21, after laying out the dreadfulness of sin and the condition in which we all, as Adam's descendants, we all find ourselves in, it asks this, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And it says, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continueth to be both God and man in one, in two distinct natures and one person forever. I wanted to make sure I got that right and didn't fall into heresy all of a sudden. <laughs> in two distinct natures and one person forever. As my professor from seminary of Christology said, there is one he, there is one person, two distinct natures, and one person forever. The question that Jesus proposes to scribes and the people challenged their misunderstanding of Christ and who he was. We see that's a vital question that we must all understand. Unfortunately, with very few exceptions, the scribes continued in their sin and unbelief. And Jesus then goes on to warn his hearers about them. And he gives to them and to us a solemn warning concerning these leaders. And really it's a warning for all of us, especially for ministers and Christian leaders. Jesus describes the behind-the-scenes characters, character of these men. These men who, as we mentioned last week were charged with the preservation of God's laws. These were the men that studied God's law. These were the men that wrote commentaries about God's law. But how did they live? What marked their life? Listen to our Lord's sad account of them. But it's not just a description. It's a warning. He says, beware. Mark summarizes in th just three verses what Matthew in Matthew 23, takes 30-some verses to speak against and warn others about the scribes. But we first, the first characteristic we see of them is their pride, and that is demonstrated in what they wear. They wore long robes that called attention to themselves. They wanted to be seen of men. They were not interested in others. They were full of self-interest. Their pride was seen in their interactions with others. They 
wanted to be greeted in certain ways. They wanted appropriate titles used of them. They probably wanted to be addressed as rabbi or master or teacher. They demanded that their status be recognized and that, that they give, were given the prominent places, the prominent seats in the synagogues and at the feasts. They never wanted to take a back row or probably even a second row. They wanted to make sure they kept their places of prominence. Jesus said elsewhere in his teaching that the greatest among you shall be a servant, but their idea of servanthood was for someone else to do it. They never wanted to serve others in a humble and sacrificial way. They wanted others to serve them and honor them. They were proud in the way they dressed, in the way they interacted with others, and in their very manner of life. We see not only they were proud, they were also corrupt. The text says in verse 40 that they devoured widows' houses. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means. To devour means to, to eat up or swallow up hungrily and greedily. And so, speaking figuratively, if you think about them, they definitely took advantage of the widows, of the most vulnerable in society. Scripture teaches in the Old Testament and the New Testament about how we are to regard those that are needy. And Scripture paints widows as being some of the most needy in society. We read in our uh, Scripture reading this morning about how the early church was to care for widows. Many of them in that day had no savings. If they had a home, it, it may have been their, their only um, thing that they owned. And here these scribes were taking from them, taking the very thing and maybe the only thing that they owned. They took advantage of everything they had, including their own home. In the main, these scribes had completely disregarded Christ's teaching to the honest scribe, maybe the only honest scribe among them, that they were to love their neighbor as themselves. They were corrupt and lovers of money. They looked for and saw opportunities to get rich in ministry, but it was at the expense of some of the poorest in society. I can't help but think of, of some in our own day, false teachers that portray themselves as, as, as receiving and, and being responsible with the monies that they are given when they actually are guilting people into giving to an empire of self that they are building Jesus says, beware of such false teachers. He says, beware of these scribes. They're proud, they're corrupt, and they're also hypocrites. He goes on in verse 40 saying that for a pretense, they make long prayers. They wanted, to people, they wanted for people to think they were holy. They wanted to have these, these beautiful prayers that, that made them look good. They had a phony pietism, but it was empty. And vain. Jesus had just spoken in the, in the previous text that we examined what it meant to love the Lord your God. We were to love him with, our, with all of our soul, mind, our strength, and, and our might. All of our heart, he said. The prayers that the scribes prayed were designed to make people think they were that, but they were not. I have to pause here and... and challenge you that if your prayers, if my prayers are just for show, if we're more concerned with praying prayers in public that sound good, than we are with really doing business with God in private, then look out 
We are looking too much like these scribes. Remember when the tax collector and the Pharisee were standing side by side and the Pharisee prayed this beautiful prayer, but basically it was just a prayer to prop himself up. And Jesus asked, and then the, then the tax collector came and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, which prayer was heard? Of course, it is the one from the tax collector, the one who recognizing, recognizes their own desperate need for mercy. That's the kind of prayers that Jesus hears. Jesus said to beware of these scribes. They were proud, they were corrupt and greedy, and they were hypocritical. They were insincere. And Jesus says finally that there is judgment coming upon these scribes for their sin. These men were leaders, and to whom much is given, much is required. There is judgment coming upon us all. But the more we know, the more accountability we have. And for those of us in Christ, the judgment has fallen upon him. But the more we know, the more accountability that we have. This is why James says in chapter 3, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is a warning to and about the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But in it, there's a warning for all of us. And if you have sat under the preaching of God's word, then you are more responsible to act upon it and to be obedient to Christ's call. I recently read of a Christian university president who was forced to resign because of a moral failure and that he insisted that it wasn't his job to be a moral leader. This article wrote that his statement and that position was a grave miscalculation on the part of the leader. Yes, it definitely was, but not because it got him fired. What was lacking in the article was that the responsibility to that, that that man had before God. That we all have, especially those in positions of leadership, to live a holy life and that there is an eternal judgment coming and that will be faced by all those who ignore God's law. So who is Jesus Christ? The scribes were posed this question. How could Jesus be? How could the Messiah be David's Lord as well as David's son? Is he just David's son? No, he is also David's Lord. Is he just a great teacher? A good example? No, he is the sinless Savior of all who come to him in faith. Is he just a good man? No, he is much more. He is the God-man. Is he just the meek and mild carpenter? Is he some easygoing, milquetoast rabbi of Galilee? No, he is the bold, temple-clearing son of God who is zealous for his father's house. He is the one that said, if you were to follow him, that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And he will not allow the scribes or you or me to build our own little kingdom because he's building his kingdom. He's the king who's coming in judgment. I mentioned a couple of creeds that help us understand who Jesus is. And a more recent one is called the Ligonier Statement on Christology, published by Ligonier Ministries a few years ago. And as I close, I want to leave you with this helpful and encouraging statement. Listen carefully to these words. 
It says, we confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us. Crucified, dead, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we praise his holy name forever. Amen. Let me ask you, what about you this evening? Have you bowed your knee to him as Lord? We have tried to see clearly who Jesus is. If he is who he claims to be, then there's only one appropriate response, and that is to follow him. If you do not know him, will you come to him today? Submit to his lordship. Bow your knee to David's Lord and make him the Lord of your life. Amen. Let us pray.